Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series today, The Crossroad, with a message called The Truth. So let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 10, verses 18 to 42, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. in a day when truth has become a relative term. What I mean is that people regularly talk about, you know, my truth or your truth as if truth were a matter of personal preference or personal beliefs or just a matter of perspective. A great many people today who no longer believe there is such a thing as truth or if they do, well, they believe it's impossible for human beings to know the truth. And by the way, they want you to believe that that's the truth. You know, amazing the internal inconsistencies of modern thought. Carol Tharp, I believe, said it well. She said, Western culture has made a fundamental change in its religious base. We've exchanged that one who said, I am the truth in John 14, verse 6, for the incredibly expensive doctrine of Freud and the words of all his disciples. Our new religion says with Pontius Pilate, what is truth? And teaches that our status is one of original victim rather than original sin. That is, we have traded a lie for the truth. But even though we live in a society that is no longer at home with the truth, I'm reminded of the words of Flannery O'Connor. And she said, the truth does not change according to our ability to stomach it. Indeed, there is the rub. Lies are for the moment, but truth is for eternity. Truth will never change, no matter what the mood. It will always be there. It will always be true. John chapter 10, verses 18 to 42 is a passage filled with truth. You know, there are in this passage at least five great doctrines of the Christian faith, and they tell us why truth matters and why truth makes a difference and why truth is so important. So let's start with verses 19 to 21. There was a great division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Now, these verses relate back to Jesus' teaching about being the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. You know, Jesus has been teaching in Jerusalem, and he's been setting the city on edge. There are arguments everywhere about what people should think about Jesus. So let's now go to verses 22 to 24. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Well, Jesus has for the last several months now in the city of Jerusalem, he's been involved in a running battle with the Pharisees. And they were, of course, the Jewish religious leaders. They had wanted to kill him, but with every attempt to trap him, they've been frustrated. And the problem started when Jesus showed up at the Feast of Booths, and that's displayed in John 7. It was then late September or early October. It's now the Feast of Dedication, which takes place in mid-December. He's walking in the colonnade of Solomon. It's rainy season, and it's arrived, and so he's walking along the eastern wall of the temple. It's covered, and it would provide protection against the elements. And Jesus' teaching style was one in which he would walk along as he taught, and his disciples would follow and they'd listen, and maybe they were even taking notes. And our text tells us that the Pharisees gathered around him, which means they suddenly surrounded him so that he couldn't get away. And they have a question. How long will you keep us in suspense? 
How long will you keep aggravating us? You're making us so angry, they say, and it seems menacing. Use plain language. Tell us the truth. Are you the Christ or are you the Messiah or not? So if Jesus had said yes, they would have handed him over to the Romans as a revolutionary. And of course, if he had said no, they would told the people, he's not who you think he is. So let's follow the drama. I'm reading now verses 25 and 26. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Now, in fact, he did tell them for the last several months over and over again. He told them that if anyone thirsts, they could come to him and drink. And if they did, rivers of living water would flow from them. He told them that he was the light of the world, and if anyone followed after him, they would never walk in darkness. He told them that he had always, for eternity, been in God's presence, and that he came to earth out of God's presence to declare God to them, that he was an actual eyewitness of the Father. He claimed that he was the great I am of Exodus 3, and and after he had healed the blind man, the man who was born blind, he claimed that he was Daniel's great son of man who approached the ancient of days and was given dominion over all peoples and nations and languages. He claimed he was the only legitimate shepherd of Israel and that everyone else was a thief and a robber. Well, these men had seen and heard him say all of that, and they were theologians and they knew the biblical language. They knew exactly what he meant. And so here they are claiming that he wasn't being clear. Tell us plainly, they say, and it sounds menacing, but they don't want the truth. All they want is another reason to condemn him. And Jesus has an answer. Why should I go into this matter over again, seeing as you never believe the truth? So why is it they don't believe? Well, you don't believe, says Jesus, because you're not of my flock. So notice he doesn't say, Because you don't believe you're not of my flock. No, no, he says it the other way. The reason you don't believe is because you're not of my flock. So there's so much we could talk about here. But suffice it to say that Romans 3 teaches us that no one seeks God, which means no one believes the truth. We're all lost in darkness, and all of us find the truth to be inconvenient. We all, as Flannery O'Connor has said, can't stomach the truth. And that's why in John 6, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You can't come to Jesus. The door isn't open. There's no inclination in your heart to go to Jesus unless the Father himself reaches out and cancels out our love for lies and draws us into the truth. And that is the nature of conversion. That's why the Apostle Paul would later say in Romans 9, 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. That's why everyone who names Christ as their Savior also testifies, not only do I believe the truth, but I believe the truth because the Holy Spirit has had mercy on me. That's why I have come to believe the truth. He canceled out my evil heart. He canceled out the heart that delighted in a world of lies, and instead, he brought me into the world of truth. Had it not been for grace, I would have rejected the truth. I would have rejected it for all time. You know, some theologians call this the effectual call or the effective call. There is a general call in which God calls all people to repent and believe. But were it not for the effective call by the Holy Spirit, we would have refused. That's the first great Christian doctrine that we find in this text. But let's keep reading. There are more. Now John 10, 27 to 29. 
My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So listen to what Jesus promises about his sheep. First of all, they have eternal life. See, they have received the life of eternity. And secondly, they will never perish. Eternal damnation will not claim them. They won't be condemned in the final judgment. And then thirdly, Jesus says of his sheep, no one will snatch them from my hand. They are eternally mine. I know, I know. Someone's going to say, well, do you believe in one saved, always saved? Well, that's a difficult question. It all depends on what you mean when you ask it. If you mean by that, do I believe that if someone has prayed the sinner's prayer and then they walk away from the Lord, will they still go to heaven? Well, look, there's a biblical answer to that. The answer is no. Jesus himself said, In Matthew 24, verse 13, that only the one who endures to the end will be saved. And I take it he meant exactly that. But of course, that's not the whole story. Look again at John 10, 27. Jesus is describing three characteristics of his sheep. First, he says, they hear his voice. Secondly, he says, he knows them. And thirdly, watch it carefully, they follow him speaks about obedience to his commands. So the idea of someone who's born again but has no desire to be obedient to Christ, well, that is a contradiction in terms. The very nature of being one of Christ's servants means that we strain forward to do what he calls us to do. So moms and dads, if your children once prayed the sinner's prayer but are not walking with Jesus, well, You need to pray that God will have mercy on them because, look, their soul is in peril. But to everyone who hears Jesus' voice and follows him, here's what Jesus says. To them, no one can snatch them out of my hand. That is, I, Jesus, will protect them and they will be eternally, eternally mine. That is, they will persevere all the way to the end. They will be faithful until death claims them or until Christ comes again. Connecting God's people to God's Word in our world today is critical. And Truth and Life Today with Dr. John Newfeld engages timely issues of life and faith so important for God's people to engage and discuss. Special guests each week examine critical issues that impact our lives and our journey with Jesus. So join us on Truth and Life Today by tuning in on Vision TV every Sunday at 1230 Eastern, or subscribe to the Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel, or simply visit us online at backtothebible.ca. And send us an email at info at backtothebible.ca to let us know that you're watching. If you'd like to learn more or share a gift to support the ministry of Truth and Life today, or any of the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, would you call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. That's 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. You know, I've said that the latter part of John 10 is filled with Christian truth or Christian doctrine. And the first is that of our own, we can't come to Christ. 
but we who believe have been effectively drawn by the Holy Spirit. The second is that those of us who have become a part of Christ's flock have eternal life granted to us, meaning that we're going to persevere with Christ all the way to the end. If we've received eternal life, it's not temporal life. The new life we have received never ends. If we should fall away, well, how could it be that we had ever received eternal life? I hope you understand that. So if you're a believer, please capture this in your heart. Your Father loves you, and He's given you, yeah, you, as a sacred gift to His Son, and you're His, and the Father will protect the relationship that you have with His Son. I know at times our hearts do wander. I know that we're tempted, and I know that we sin. But because we're given to Christ as a sacred gift, the Good Shepherd will take his crook and pull us to himself. No one can snatch you from his hand. You'll die in Christ. You'll be eternally his. There's a hallelujah for you. Now next, we come to verse 30. Here's another doctrine, third one. And this one is the pinnacle of truth. Everything we believe and know is wrapped up in this one verse. John 10, verse 30 records Jesus is saying, I and the Father are one. Well, that's what this entire book, that is the book of John, is all about. The truth is the doctrine of Christ. The book begins that way. John 1, 1 says that Jesus is both with God, meaning that he is a different person than the Father, and he is also God at the same time, meaning that he is of the same essence as the Father. I know that's a profound mystery, but it's a truth. And that's how the book ends as well. It's with Thomas in John 20, verse 28, saying, Of Jesus, my Lord and my God. And that's why Jesus could say in John 14, verse 9, If anyone has seen me, he has seen the Father. That's why Jesus could say that he is the great I am. And that's why he could say that he and the Father are one. Yeah? They're distinct persons, but they are one in essence, one in substance. It's called the doctrine of the Trinity, but it's also the doctrine of Christ. You know, Paul warns us in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 4 about what he calls another Jesus. I know it's a strange statement. It's as if Paul were saying that there are a lot of different gods out there named Jesus. There's the Jesus of the cults, who is, according to one group, really just another representation of, of the archangel Michael. Then there's the Jesus of another group, claiming that there are a number of different gods and Jesus is one of them. Then there's the Jesus of liberal theology, who teach that Jesus is just a brilliant religious teacher. Then there's the Jesus of Eastern religions, who teach that Jesus is one of the manifestations of Brahman. And then there's the Jesus of the ancient Aryans who say that, that Jesus is the first of the creation that God has made. Then there's the Jesus of Islam who says that Jesus is just a prophet but inferior to Muhammad. So many different Jesuses. Look at it this way. You know, my name's John. And I've noticed that there are thousands of people out there named John. And, and just because someone's talking about John, it doesn't mean they're talking about me. The same's true about Jesus. Just because someone says they believe in Jesus doesn't mean that they believe in the Jesus of history, the one who said he was God, come in human flesh. And it's this true Jesus that we must worship. The real historical Jesus said, I and the Father are one. 
And interestingly enough, the Pharisees knew exactly what Jesus was saying. So as we keep reading our text, verses 31 to 33, it says, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. See, they'd have run over to that part of the temple which was still under construction and picked up bricks. They were ready to stone him on the spot. How do we know he's telling the truth? See, at this point, Jesus gives us what we might call the foundation of all truth. And here I'm reading verses 34 to 36. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said you are gods. If you call them gods, to whom the word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken, Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? So Jesus is quoting Psalm 82 here. You know, in this psalm, God is addressing the judges in Israel, and these men had been given the job of applying the law of God in Israel, and God calls them gods, that is, with a small g. You know, if the Scripture can call judges gods, then why can't I call myself the Son of God? That's what Jesus is saying. In other words, how can you charge me with blasphemy? Now, behind this statement, of course, there's a foundation. And the foundation, Jesus is saying, all truth rests here. He says, the scripture cannot be broken. So what does that mean? Well, it means that the Bible is absolutely indestructible. No matter how any person regards it, it is truth. The Bible is the inspired, infallible, authoritative word of God. You know, as Flannery O'Connor said, The truth does not change according to our ability to stomach it. Or as Paul says in Romans 3 verse 4, let God be true and every man a liar. So if this book really is the word of God, then it is truth. It now is not a matter of what you think or what I think or what your favorite movie star thinks or what your favorite radio preacher thinks or what your favorite philosopher thinks or what your church thinks or what your heart is telling you or what your mom and dad always told you or or what you've always believed. If this book is the word of God, this book then is the standard of truth. It is a ruler. It's a sacred measuring tape by which we measure all truth claims. It is a scale by which we weigh all truth claims. The presence of this book in the world, a possession of the human race, is the bedrock on which all reality, fact, and certainty, and truth rests. Even if you can't trust anyone or anything else, you can trust this. The scripture cannot be broken, said Jesus. It's called the doctrine of scripture. I wish I could convince Christians of that. See, every once in a while, I'll hear someone say something about a Bible doctrine. They'll say, you know, I find that distasteful or that's outdated or it's disturbing. Well, I find it disturbing as well, but that doesn't change the truth. Thy word is truth. Why is that important? Well, look again at verse 36. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? See, Jesus states it. He said he is God's consecrated one, and that revelation comes out of Scripture. In other words, he is God's holy, sacred, and hallowed one. The Scripture has called him that. 
Jesus is holy ground. And it's fascinating because, you know, this conversation is going on at the Feast of the Dedication. And the Feast of Dedication was a remembering of the reconsecration of the temple. So a Syrian invader had dragged a pig into the temple and sacrificed it there and defiled the temple. And so after the Syrians had been driven out, well, the temple had to be made clean again. It had to be reconsecrated. But here's Jesus standing in the temple and saying, you want to know where the holy place is? I am the holy place. And if you want to be holy, listen to me now. Here's a great Christian doctrine. If you want to be holy, you have to come to Jesus. The only way to be holy is to believe in him. He is the one who can make all defiled places and all defiled men and women clean. He alone can do that. And with that, we move now to verses 37 to 42. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe in the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to a place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. And so Jesus leaves Jerusalem. In effect, his teaching ministry there is over. He'll not return until the beginning of April, four months later, and he will not come to convince them then. He will come to die at Passover. And with this comes an ominous note. He has given the Pharisees their last chance to hear, and then he withdraws. And with that, there's a dreadful warning. Do not neglect the truth, for if you do, you may not have another chance. Today, if this speaks to you, respond immediately. Do not think you can respond on your timetable. Confess your sin to Jesus today. John, can you tell me the difference between doctrinal and lifestyle teaching? Because I know doctrinal teaching is important. Yeah, I mean, I would, go, Ben, I would argue that, you know, it, it, doctrinal preaching, when it's done well, always has an application to our lives and our lifestyle. But if it's lifestyle preaching of in and of itself, it always caters to, you know, the things that I want and the things that make me happy or the things that work in my life. Um, but doctrinal preaching, I mean, it founds itself on the, on the truth. Uh, and that's what Christians have to cling to. Uh, we don't make application without the truth. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Crossroad in the Book of John, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Have you heard Dr. John's latest series in the Book of the Psalms, Finding Pleasure in God? Well, if you haven't, or if you'd like to hear it again, or you want to send it to a friend, we want to send Finding Pleasure in God on CD as our gift to you. We also want to include Dr. John's series on Psalm 42, To the King, accompanied by a limited edition illustration of Psalm 42 on a magnet for your kitchen, your office, or shop, all reminding you of God's faithfulness. These three ministry resources, all free as our gift. Finding Pleasure with God, to the King and the limited edition Psalm 42 illustration on a magnet. To ask for your free gifts this month, 
or to offer a gift to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.